0: Good evening, guys. It's good to be here. I mean, I'm usually here sitting at the back just watching, listening to Josiah preach. Um, and then we uh, we do a spreadsheet on how well he communicated. He gets a grade on money. <laughs> <laughs> And so far he survived. How many years has it been? Is this the fifth year? Well, this is uh, year number four. Year number four. So he's always made the cut. Uh, no, that's a joke, really. Now we we talk about a lot of staff meeting. It occurs to me when I get up here and look at you guys that oh well a couple of things occur to me. Um, when when I came here and spoke at Connection for the first time, uh, a lot of you were either one year old or just about to be born. It shows you how old I am and how long I've been here. And I really can't quite believe that sometimes when I look out at you because there's a way in which um, being where I am well first it keeps me young I hope it it really at least keeps me young at heart but there's another thing that happens in a position where I am is you guys never change right people leave but they're replaced by you guys and you're all the same age and so connection never changes and so I think I'm not changing and I am I'm getting older man you're right about this corner like I haven't um, so that, that's, that's odd sometimes when I think about how long I've been here and, and how young some of you were when I arrived. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is there's a lot of you probably don't really know me. I mean, you might have seen me, you might have been here on Sunday morning and kind of know me that way. So um, at the risk of going over, Josiah is really prompt, and I'm not always, so um, I might go a little bit over. But I wanted to tell you just a little bit about <clears throat> where I come from who I am. So I was raised in South Florida, right close to West Palm Beach, but I was actually born in Louisville, Kentucky, just across the river as a kid, but spent almost all my life in South Florida. Um, When I was uh, only 20 years old, only 20, I got married. Now, that might seem odd to you, but people used to do that a long time ago in rural (laughs) counties in Florida. Uh, they would graduate high school then they would get married at least I made it through two years of college before we did this and we got married um, And after we got married we had two children both my kids are long gone grown up and out of the home uh, My son is married. He lives in uh, Los Angeles, California, and he does uh, Basically does independent film stuff and all that kind of stuff and I'm not going to go into that But that's what he does out there Um, My daughter uh, actually is in Indianapolis, and that's been real fun for us for the last uh, almost a year now. She's been up there, and um, she's a sports broadcaster, so if you tune in to Channel 4 CBS, uh, you might see her up there doing the sports news. Um, So those are my two kids. My wife uh, and I have been married for a long time, (laughs) 34 years now, 34 years, Um, and um, we're still married. Uh, yeah. yeah, all to her credit, I think. Um, but uh, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful life. And I came here 18 years ago, uh, and I've often said when I drove into Bloomington, it felt like home from the time I drove in, and it's never changed. It's always felt like this was home, like I was born here or something. It's a weird kind of coming home experience to a place I've never been. Um, but it's been that way ever since, and I just love this place. I love ECC. I love it. Uh, because, among other things, it's so closely uh, you know, associated with the university. There's so many of you and so many professors and different people like that at ECC. Um, it's just really, really great place. And I'm glad you're here. So Josiah asked me to think with you about what it means to be a Christian in the university. And my assumption is that he meant the secular university, namely IU. you. <clears throat> Uh, He's not really asking what it means to be Christian in a Christian university, but in particular in this university. So I have three thoughts for you about being Christian in the university. And I'll give you the three thoughts and then I'll break it down. Okay? The first thought is this. Being a Christian in this university is or should mean embracing what is good. Okay, I'll say more. Second thing, being a Christian in this university context should be understanding the limits of knowledge. Again, I'll say more. And third, being a Christian in this university or other universities, in that place, you will experience both faith and doubt. And that's okay. If you didn't, you wouldn't be normal. And if you didn't, I'm not quite sure your faith would be very strong. So let me go back to the first point. Being a Christian in a university ought to look something like embracing what is good. Um, You know that sharing the gospel is most often associated with telling people about Jesus and attempting in that telling of your story to invite them to come into the story and to receive Christ. That's often what we think about. When we think of being a witness, right? Or being the gospel in the context of any setting and the university as well. But what I want to say is that part of being a witness is something else. Part of being a witness is loving the Lord your God, as Jesus said, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And that means that being a witness in the university should look something like this. People should look at you and look at us and say that person is committed, absolutely committed to doing their best in this setting. That person came here with a purpose. It was to get an education. And you can tell that girl or that guy is not fooling around. They're on it. They take their education seriously. Because it's to be a Christian is more than just sort of this. Emotional relationship with Jesus. To be a Christian means to follow Jesus so thoroughly that every part of your life is open to Jesus' Lordship. So that means every part of your study is open to His Lordship so you serve Him with your studies. Right? So that's why Jesus said, um, and other people have said since then, and it said actually in the Old Testament, to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul put it another way on one occasion when he was talking about issues in the Corinthian church. He said, what I want you to remember is to, I want you to do this. I want you to do everything you do. I'm just abbreviating. Do everything you do to the glory of God. So if you're a math major, you're doing absolutely everything you can to be an excellent math student for the glory of God. Spirituality is not something other than your reality. Spirituality is living for Christ within your reality. That's true spirituality, right? So, embracing the good at the university is an important thing for you to do as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, as a witness for Christ. Um, there's a, a quote—a just real short quote—I want to give you. Give me and ask you if you recognize it. Here's the quote: "The support of great universities is the most lasting of all investments." Does anybody recognize that quote? Um, most of you have seen it; you just don't know that because you're not very aware of your environment. Now it's changed because I went over to check. It's in the Memorial Union, and when you walk past, um, what's the name of the place? Big, not the cafeteria. The next one up, the Tutor, Tutoring, right? when you walk past the tutor room, the tutor room, if you're walking towards the parking lot, on the left of the tutor room, straight ahead on that wall, there used to be actually sort of a, a, a gold lettering that was right up on the wall that had this quote, the support of great universities is the most lasting of all investments. I went over there the other day to check to see if it's still there, and they changed it, but the quote's still there. It's now on a, it's a screen that's got rolling names on it, I would imagine people who have contributed to the university, and on the top of it, that quote is there. And that quote comes from Herman B. Wells, who was one of the most famous, legendary figures at IU um, from 19, man, I can't remember until 1962, something like 60 years the guy was the president of IU. Herman B. Wells had a lot of memorable quotes, but that was one of his quotes. The support of great universities is the most lasting of all investments. And what I want to say to that quote is, I agree with Herman D. Wells with one suggested adaptation to the quote. I actually think the greatest investment, the most lasting investment that anybody can make is an investment in your faith and in the church. Okay, Because the church of Jesus Christ not only will endure the test of time throughout history, But the Church of Jesus Christ is the only institution in the world that is both physical and eternal. There is no other institution in the world that is both physical and eternal. The Church of Jesus Christ is both. Now, having said that, let me back up. When Herman B. Wells made that comment, he was almost 100% correct. Because... Apart from the church, there is no institution in the history of the world that has generated so many wonderful ideas and changed civilization so much as great universities have. Whether it's science or law or the study of history or any number of other things, economics, it is birthed in the place where you now reside. Western civilization, as you know it, ha- was birthed in the place where you now reside. It was ideas in that place and in the church that created the Western civilization that you now know. It is a wonderful place. So the point is, invest in it. Invest in what is good. It is full of goodness. Because sometimes, as Christians, we get a little ornery, you know? We get... Uh, all in our critique high horse about the university and we wanna say what is wrong with it because it's not Christian and how people are challenging our faith and they will but it's a wonderful institution. So being a Christian in the university is embracing what is good. Second, being a Christian in the university is understanding the limits of knowledge. Here's an idea. If God is the sovereign creator, as in designer, And governor, as in the person who takes care of all things, if God is that for the universe, okay? Sovereign Lord of the universe. If God is the creator of all things, the sovereign Lord of the universe, there is no knowledge at all that should challenge our faith. No knowledge should challenge our faith. Because every bit of knowledge is God's, right? So there's no, don't worry about knowledge challenging your faith. Knowledge itself won't challenge your faith. The difficulty is not the facts or the knowledge. It's the application of the knowledge, right? Example, um, when Albert Einstein was famous for splitting the attic, Lots of things could come of that scientific discovery. One of the things that came from that scientific discovery was nuclear weapons, right? Something of the vein of our existence right now. Because we're terrified that we're going to kill each other and blow everything up. Was there anything wrong with splitting the atom? Was there anything wrong with the knowledge that delivered to us the ability to annihilate every human being on the earth? No. No. What's wrong? The application of the knowledge. There's nothing wrong with any form of knowledge, except when applied inappropriately. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. All knowledge of the universe is knowledge about God. The application of that knowledge is the critical turn of the road. So for instance, when it comes to science, When it comes to logic when it comes to history when it comes to human sexuality there is no knowledge concerning any of those subjects than other than the knowledge of god some of you um, may have heard before you ever arrived at iu of the kinsey institute right it's a institute for the study of human sexuality a very provocative place for lots of people a very unchristian place for lots of people. A very controversial place Where Herman B. Wells allowed it to happen under the direction of the man named Kinsey. You know what the reality of the Kinsey Institute is? There's nothing wrong with the knowledge that's the result of the study of human sexuality at the Kinsey Institute. The only thing wrong with it is its application. If you take the knowledge concerning human sexuality and you reduce it to the physical level only, okay, and do your best to come to full, complete happiness with your physical sensation and call that sexuality, there could be lots of other parts, right? Sexuality, and that's all you focus on, you have completely overlooked the knowledge that is right before you. Because that knowledge must be linked with something else, applied in a different way, in order for the highest good to be accomplished. The highest notion of sexuality is not body, it's soul. The highest notion of sexuality is the unification of a man and woman who are absolutely, passionately in love with one another, and that, passionate love between them. Yet this is the best analogy that Paul could come up with to describe Christ and the church. That's why the church is called the Bride of Christ. That's why the Song of Solomon is so rich with romantic and even erotic language. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. It's the application that's right or wrong. There's nothing wrong with the knowledge concerning the human body in any fashion. It's the application that's appropriate or not. So that leads me to this suggestion about understanding the limits of knowledge. Knowledge is more than empirical fact. Okay. So this, is, I apologize that this sounds like a lecture. It doesn't sound like anything from the Bible, but the Bible is all through this. I'm just not quoting passages. Um, I've referred to a few, but it's just what I'm trying to do is to speak out of my heart to you from a thoroughly Christian worldview about reality. Whenever I speak about issues like this, to try to exclude the themes of the scripture from it would be to take away 90% of my thoughts. Because Everything I say is growing out of a life of living in Scripture, I promise you. So here's the thing. Knowledge has its limitations. And here's a limitation of knowledge. Knowledge is more than empirical facts or data. Okay? It seems that knowledge is just that. But there's more to knowledge than that. That's why faith is so critically important, even to this category called knowledge. Knowledge, as it relates to faith is this the unveiling the opening the drawing back of the curtain on a reality that is invisible and eternal and that too is knowledge and it's the drawing back of the the curtain on those invisible principles of the eternal God that help us to apply the knowledge that we have where does that knowledge come from it comes from faith It doesn't come from looking it up scientifically. You'll come to a dead end at some point. It doesn't come from looking it up economically. You'll come to a dead end at some point. There's a whole baseline of knowledge that's related to faith. St. Augustine uh, described it this way. He said, knowledge that we now have, and this is not a quote at all, knowledge that we now have is wonderful, (coughs) but it only takes us so far. There's another level of knowledge, or you might say another depth of knowledge that's available to us through faith. Here's an analogy. It breaks down like all analogies. If you take an oar and place it in the water, if you're in a boat, and the sun is hitting the water in a certain way, which most times it does, and the water is rather clear, you can look at the oar, and you could swear that it's doing a 45 degree turn. Right? There's only one way to prove That that ore is straight and not crooked. It's to take your hand beneath the surface into the water that you cannot fully see and test the structure of the ore. And then you'll find out that it's straight. Faith is that kind of knowledge, it takes you beneath the surface of empirical knowledge that you have and you can acquire in a classroom. It takes you to another level or to another height. It's another form of knowledge. And it's critically important for life. It is. It's the unveiling of something you couldn't see just with the facts. So here's my third point. Being a Christian in the university is about experiencing doubt and faith. I had studied philosophy um, probably more than I should have uh, over the years. But I like philosophy a lot, and I'm not going to go all geek on you with philosophy. But if you've ever taken an intro to philosophy of course, you may have run into a thing called proofs for the existence of God. If you haven't, let me give you a quick overview. There's a thing called classical proofs for the existence of God. One of them is called the ontological argument. Absolutely inexplicable, but I tried to do it when I taught philosophy, and students seemed to kind of get it, actually. I never could figure out why, because I didn't get it. There's an ontological argument it relates to the nature of being, right? There's a thing called the cosmological argument, and really that's about first cause. That one's easier to explain. It basically says this. You can know that the existence of God is for real because there had to be a first cause, and that first cause couldn't have been a human cause because human cause is not eternal, and that cannot be the cause of itself, right? You can't be the cause of yourself. There's no possibility. No human being is the cause of himself. But God is a self caused cause, right? And there has to be one of those for anything to exist. That's the argument. That argument can break down logically if you want to completely go at it, and people do. People write dissertations about this kind of stuff. There's another argument for the existence of God called the teleological argument, and that's the argument by design. It's to say, if you look at this universe and the intricacies, intricacies of design in the universe, it's just inconceivable that this could have just sort of emerged out of nothing. right? There's too much design feature to it to suggest that this is an accident. We could go into the details of that, but that's another argument for the existence of God. A fourth argument for the existence of God that's often proposed is what's called a moral argument for the existence of God. And therefore, I'm not going to go into it. My point is going to be very simple. What is traditionally said to be a proof for the existence of God is not. Because there is no proof for the existence of God. If there was proof for the existence of God, there would be no necessity for faith. Think about it. God says, I want you to believe in me. And I've given you signs and wonders, as John's gospel repeatedly calls them. I've given you reason to believe in me. I have given you, in effect, not proof. I've given you something else. I've given you reasonable lampposts and streetlights and arrows that point to me. It's not proof. It's not proof at all. It's actually reasonable inference. God says, I exist, and I wanna communicate with you. I want you to be in relationship with me. I wanna change your life, but I'm not gonna prove it. Not with the kind of proofs that you traditionally think of as proofs. I'm gonna give you reasons to believe. And then you're going to make a choice. Do I believe or don't I? Is it unreasonable? Absolutely not. It's very reasonable. But it's not proof in the traditional sense. Else there'd be no need for faith. You know, as a matter of fact, um, most things in life that are deeply meaningful to us, we don't have proof for. But we rely on them every day. You know what the most... um, Meaningful reality in my life is the love of my wife and my children. Ask me to prove it. I can't. I can give you all kinds of reasons I believe it. I can tell you this woman has been devoted to me for 34 years and she has been. You might say, Bob, that's proof. That's not proof, the kind of proof that an analytical scientist is demanding of you to have in order to prove God's existence. That's not the kind of proof it is. My wife could walk out on me tomorrow and someone would say, Aha, I told you. See, you never knew. You didn't have proof. My kids could turn their backs on me and the same thing could be said, Aha, you didn't see it. it. That wasn't proof. You know what, you're right. But I have every reason to believe in every fiber of my being that my wife loves me as much or more than she loves herself can i prove it no do i believe it absolutely is it meaningful more than any empirical evidence you could hand me it's more meaningful than sight than sound than anything else that's proof And all of life is full of that kind of stuff. My friends, it's full of it. The most meaningful things in life are not subject to empirical empirical proof. They aren't. They're deeply meaningful and you hold them tightly. And that's the way faith is. So what about faith? Um, Experiencing faith and doubt. You're going to experience faith. If you're here, that's why you're here, right? You wouldn't otherwise be here if you didn't have some, at least curiosity about faith. You're going to experience faith and you're going to experience doubt. And you should experience both of them because it's real. There's personal doubt that you'll experience and there are a whole group of very faithful people in the Bible who experience personal doubt. Isaiah was a big one. Elijah was another. John the Baptist was another. Hang on to your seat. I'm going to speak with something that sounds like a heresy. Jesus was another. Say, Bob, come on. You're really going over the edge. I'm talking about the human nature of Jesus. How could there not be doubt in this statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a climactic crisis of human faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It looked like for a moment, in the deepest recesses of his human reality, that God had checked out on him. Jesus somehow knew it wasn't true, but felt it to be true. And that's why we can connect so well with Jesus. He went through that, and yet without sin, yet without caving in to doubt. So there's personal doubt that you're going to experience. I promise you, you're going to experience it if you haven't already early in the semester. But there's also external pressures that create doubt. And you know those all too well, right? Everything around you is pushing in upon your faith or pulling out on your faith and trying to constrict you of the faith you have. Those are external realities. And the external reality comes in many ways. The scripture calls it the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is like an ethos. It's like a a suit that you're swimming in. And it just constricts you like pollution in the water. The flesh is your particular propensity to sin and to do what you ought not to do. And the devil is the devil. On one occasion, Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter was struggling with his faith and Jesus said to Peter in a predictive way Peter Satan wants to sift you like wheat he wants to take you apart grain by grain until there's nothing left but chaff but Jesus said I have prayed for you I Praying for you, because you're mine, Peter. And he predicted one of these days you're going to crumble in the face of persecution and doubt. And Peter did. And then he turned back to his Lord, and he was healed. It's a reality, guys. You're going to experience some measure of doubt right alongside your faith. Don't give in. You're at the right place at the right time. God has chosen for you to be here. Do your best. Affirm what is good. On those days when you don't believe in God, don't worry. God believes in you. He's called you by name. Trust in God. Not your faith. Believe that God believes in you. Sounds kind of weird. Kind of like self-talk, but it's true. Life um, will never, ever be rich. Not the kind of rich that it could be. Unless you experience it by faith. Unless you continue to walk with Jesus Christ in the midst of all the challenges of life, you will never have the richness of life that you deserve. I promise you, I'm getting older now. As I look back, there's no chance. There's no chance I could have as rich a life as I now have except through faith in Jesus Christ. So don't give it up. Here's the last thing I want to say. In the midst of the struggle, which I know you guys are going to face, be encouraged. Because you don't have to overcome the world. Jesus has already done it. There's a wonderful passage in John's Gospel, chapter 16, where He's talking to the disciples about leaving them. And they're saying, what the bejeevers are you talking about? You're speaking figurative language. You don't under- I don't understand you. Then Jesus says, when He begins to get a little bit more concrete with them, and they say, oh, we get it now. We understand what you're saying. Just listen to these words. Jesus says, you believe at last. You morons! I've been telling you this all the time and you finally get it. You're waking up to the reality that was in front of you all along. You believe it last. It's with an exclamation point. And then he goes this. He goes like this. He says, But a time is coming and has come when you'll be scattered. Each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Your faith is going to fail you. You're going to walk out on me. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. You don't need to overcome the world. You don't need to overcome doubt. You just need to refuse to stop clinging to Jesus. And He'll overcome the world for you. I don't know. Do you pray at the end? I want to. Yeah, let's pray. God, I thank you um, for how rich um, this thing called Christian faith is. We would be empty and um, hollow people without it. It challenges us. It makes us think. And in the world that we live in, there's a lot of things that threaten our faith. But we don't really need to be afraid, Lord, because you created all things, and you're the sovereign over all things, and you're going to bring all things together. You are, in the words of Jesus, going to overcome the world. So help us to hold tight with your faith, to love you in the midst of our doubt, and allow you to bring us through those times of doubt to faith in you again. And we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, Amen.